imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Kalin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and filter power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool. I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. Welcome to the one, the only, the home of the... Protonic Reversal. Here we go, episode 150. I was going to do a huge production of this. Maybe something akin to the 100th episode where I did like the speed round of guests... You know, just really kind of like try to celebrate the show, celebrate this bizarre thing that I've done for six years. I think something like that. Uh, Plus, but you know, weird times, weird times. So I figured what better way to celebrate the 150th episode than by talking to one of my favorite guests and one of my favorite people in music, Mr. Steve Albini. So we're going to have Steve Albini on. Uh, Should be great. I don't know if I have any anything, any words of wisdom or information that we should be talking about before that. Oh, there's a Patreon for Protonic Reversal right now. So if you like the show, the only thing that's different is you get the, sh- the episodes ahead of time rather than having to wait. And uh, there's going to be some uh, what you call mini episode content at some point. But there's a lot of episodes coming out that are not in the normal slot. Uh, there's a backlog of a few already right now. So if you like the show and you want to support the show, dollar a month. That's all it is. No sponsors. No ads ever. But yeah, dollar a month. That's it. Anyway, let's hear a shellac song. Then we'll talk to Steve Albini. <laughs> Hobby. 
the Defenders! I've done 150 episodes of this nonsense. You'd think I could not sound like an excited child when I get somebody on the phone, but I guess... Uh... <laughs> Yesterday I did a, a telephone interview for a school project for with a, a 16-year-old high school kid. That's awesome. Uh, well, was, was that awesome? <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. The kid was the, I I I had a whole day scheduled of interviews yesterday. Like I did interviews. Like the, there were a bunch of journalists that wanted to talk to me about this soundtrack album that I worked on, and and there was some other stuff that had was like had survived from long ago. Like interviews that I had to blow off for whatever reason, and then I rescheduled them. And and Taylor set it up so I could knock them all out in one day. So I had like eight and a half hours of interviews yesterday. Oh, that's a lot of talking. That's And <laughs> like the first half a dozen were adults who are sort of professionals, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were asking me like adult professional questions for publication or whatever. And then I did this one with a 16-year-old high school kid for a school project. And that was by far the most interesting conversation i bet yeah yeah what 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 was the conceit of the project what what do you remember like he was doing a thing about the history of the or the influence of the chicago punk underground on the chicago the greater chicago culture like okay the way it intersects with the art community and the gay subculture and the um like the mainstream music scene and all that sort of mainstream music industry. And so he was interviewing a bunch of really interesting people. Like he told me, he interviewed interviewed Tim Powell, who was there at the very beginning. You know, he recorded the Busted at Oz album and he recorded a whole bunch of the early punk bands records and demo tapes and stuff. And and he interviewed me and I think he interviewed uh, Terry Nelson, um, who was a DJ at WZRD for the radio program called the Sunday morning nightmare, which was like the first, um, all punk radio program that I'd ever heard of, you know? Well, and yeah, that's gotta be something you don't talk about every day too. So that's, that's nice yeah. To, and for a kid that young to, yeah. to have like such a, like a deep well of, of people to talk to, and at a moment in history when every single one of them has time on her hands, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I my, my level of interest would have been there at that age, but I would never even conceived of putting something like that together. That's kind of badass, actually. But yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like, if you get somebody's phone number, you can call them. He's going to be home, right? <laughs> well, that's that's kind of been the, the conceit of me doing all these episodes, is especially folks that are, you know, always busy. It's like, well, you ain't busy now, so... <laughs> When do you right. want to do it? <laughs> I mean, that's that's also. I, I I feel like not enough people are making use of this historical moment. Like Joe Wong has done a tremendous job. I don't know if you listen to the Trap Set podcast, but he's had episodes, yeah. new episodes, new conversations every day. Yep. You know. Yeah, and and, and I've I've been cranking them out uh, about in the same regularity, but uh, kind of waiting uh, to release some of them because I'm mm. setting up some other back end stuff. It's not just to serve the show or the host, but also as kind of a service because Mm. people are this weird gestalt of being bored, but anxious and worried. And to have something to concentrate on that can contextualize some of that will also take your mind off of some of it, I think is a a bit of a service at this point. And I mean, from my perspective, it's, it's literally all I can do. I can't 
go record. I can't tour. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> can't do much of anything. So it's just it helps yeah, same, keep me same. sane. Like, normally, like my my life is all hustle, right? Like if I'm not working in the studio, like I'm my band is out playing or my band is practicing or I'm playing cards or like I'm doing something 24 seven to try to make, to try to cover my nut. Like I just, it's been amazing. Like this is the first time in my life when every single one of my hustles has been cut off. You know, normally if right. one of them dies, then there's room for me to like, like if I, if there's, if it's slow at the studio, I can head to the casino and play cards. You know, if it's, uh, if the band is on tour, then I'm making money there, and that offsets the fact that I'm not making money in sessions. Or if my band has got, you know, it has time to make a record, then there's potential income in the future at a minimum from the sales of those records. So that offsets the time that I spent working on them. Like this is the first time in my life where I literally I can't do anything to make money. Right. You know, <laughs> and also it's it's worth noting that that doesn't just affect you, but you know, there's there's all of electrical audio as well that is out of commission also. Yeah. I mean, that's the heavy part of it. Is it like these guys that I love and that I, you know, admire and respect and that I get to work with every day, like these people that are, that mean the world to me. I'm now, I have to somehow figure out how to, a way to make it so that we, the studio survives. Otherwise, you know, none of them can go to the doctor, you know, like that's the, that's the fucking horrible thing about yeah. it. Is it like, we're at a time in history when everybody is getting sick and the biggest risk of shuttering a business is that you leave people without the option to go to the doctor, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm incredibly hesitant to bring too much of my personal life onto the show. Cause that's not why people tune in. But the fact that my, you know, my day job as laid off, it's, it's, you know, Mrs. Neutron has a preexisting condition. Like we're going to have to go on Cobra at least for the time being. And that's incredibly expensive. Right. Right, and Cobra is Cobra was like hyped as this way for people who get who lose their jobs to keep their insurance, you know, like keep. But it's what it gives you is the option to pay through the fucking nose yeah. for insurance. It doesn't give you the insurance; it gives you the option to pay through the fucking nose, you know. And it's and that's you know that's not a a bug. That's the feature because the idea is they don't want you to do it. So yeah, exactly. They make it, they yeah. make it as difficult as possible and as expensive as possible. To the point, that most people, if they have the ability, or you know, would would rather just be like, "Oh, screw that! I'll just, you know, I'll I'll go without until I find a new job or whatever." Yeah, I, of the people that I know that have been between jobs, like if they know that they have insurance coming with the new job, or if they know that all of their prospective jobs will have reasonable insurance, every single one of them that I know of has opted not to go on Cobra just because the, the initial expense is so huge at a yeah. point where you're losing all your income, you know? Yeah. And, and frankly, I mean, not to put to find a point on it, I don't really have a choice at this point as, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, that's terrifying. And that's something that is just a, you know, creeping worry monster in the back of your head the entire time. Uh, as if there is enough stuff to worry about and be concerned about <laughs> right now. It's like, you got that as well. Yeah. And that's not a unique just, situation, don't get me wrong, but like it's, it's... No, but this whole thing just highlights how absolutely fucking insane it is that we tied healthcare to employment right. fundamentally. It's just the the most insane thing. If you get sick, you're, you know, chances are you could lose your job, Yeah. which means you then lose the means to go 
take care of yourself for being sick. It's it's fucking insane. It's it, you know. Yeah, whatever. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense at all until you look at the fact that, oh, there's a bunch of people that profit off of this. So there you go. There's the logic. Exactly. <laughs> if you are a sociopath, <laughs> then all of it makes sense. There was a there, there was a test in the uh, that somebody published maybe ten or fifteen years ago. You know, if you take this pet, take this test, and and you score yourself on a numerical scale, and if you you know if you score higher than uh, you know, higher than X, you're, you're a sociopath, right? And everybody at the studio took the test, and one of the guys at the studio t- uh, scored high enough to be considered a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, oh, yeah, of course that guy did. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a shocker. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so there's a, there's a scenario like that for societies as well. Like, you know, like if, if you're, you know, if your society does this, this, and this, well, then it's, you know, it's clearly built for sociopaths. And, you know, like, yeah. okay, if you make it so that you are punished for being sick, and so that the bonus for being sick is that you're also punished, then clearly your society is built for sociopaths. Well, and then there's, in, in these so-called debates where they would just be like, well, how are you going to pay for it? And it's 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 such a disingenuous argument because you're paying for it now, you know, well, most people through payroll deductions and, and uh, co-pays. There's a simple answer for that question. Like, every time anybody says, how are you going to pay for it? You say, the government controls how much money you there is. You make the money, dude. <laughs> you literally print the money. Yeah, like, exactly. that isn't figuratively. You are you literally are the ones that print the money. Exactly. And, that, and that's the other, the other argument with it as well. It's such a disingenuous argument. And if you look at yeah. who sponsors those debates, look at their lead advertisers, it's all... You know, the people that, guess what? They're profiting. It's all the people that are making money off of the way it is. And that's not a shocker in any way, shape, or form. But it's just this bizarre yeah. Mobius loop of fuckery that we seem to be stuck in in America right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting you mentioned, yeah, Shellac being on tour. Because the last show that I saw before, that I didn't play was you guys uh, at Milwaukee, which which was uh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, great show. I mean, we we were that was the night before we played. The, that yep. was our second to last show of the tour. It was meant to be the third to last show of the tour, but we canceled the Minneapolis show um, because it, uh, it was it was working so rapidly. Like when we yep. when we were starting to head out, it was like, well, all the places that we're going, there's very low incidence of the virus. Nobody's there's no like social distancing orders there, everything, everybody is sort of behaving normally in all of these places that we had planned to go. So we're like, okay, well, I guess it's worth trying to make the tour then. And the first show, no problem. Second show, everybody's talking about it and how like it's slightly risky to go to a big show. Third show, absolutely everyone is talking about how going to a big show is kind of risky. Fourth show in Milwaukee, we sold 600 tickets and 480 people showed up <clears throat> and uh then or 650 tickets and 480 people showed up then uh the third show was in a really small club and the really small club said that they had to refund a whole bunch of tickets because people didn't want to come out and so we're like yeah Matt, this is probably the end of it and then the the next day we're like you know, all of these people that were like, we'd been in regular contact with first Avenue, the yep. club we were going to play in Minneapolis. 
and they were like, nobody's canceling anything. Everything is still going on right. like every day. <laughs> and then, it, and then it went from nobody's canceling everything. Everything is still on to, yeah, we're not doing anything. Everything is shut. Yeah. So like, literally overnight it went from, yeah, we're, we're not worried. We're not, you know, nobody's canceling anything to, yeah, we're not doing anything. Everything is shut down. Right, not figuratively, literally. And and the the day after your show in Milwaukee, we actually went up and played in Minneapolis. And while we were driving, the governor like made the order, <clears throat> you know, hey everybody, you know, stay home like this. And then First Avenue, we saw you know the First Avenue shows got canceled and everything. And what's so funny? And I wasn't aware of this at the time. Right, so we our show went on, uh, such as it was at a, at a vastly reduced scale. But the thing that cracked me up so much, there was a another event before it that was an open mic stand up comedy show, <laughs> and uh, that that was that was something to behold. Let's put it that way. Yeah, those people are not. You know, you could tell people that the um, that everybody who doesn't go up on stage is going to be uh, um, executed, and they would still turn up for the <laughs> right, open mic. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, we got uh, 20 people on the list. Uh, first 10 are going to get time. Everybody else executed. All right, yeah, no problem. Oh, well. <laughs> what Whatever. was I doing? It pays your money, it takes your choice. <laughs> Life is full of compromise. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I did notice that now, on the, sh- the show that I did see, though, uh, there was a couple, because yeah, I'd see, I actually worked it out. Believe it or not, of the of the different places around the country and over the years, I've seen Shellac play 33 times. Holy shit, that's more than I've seen us play. <laughs> uh, but I noticed that, you know, since whatever the last time I'd seen you play, there were some, if they're not new songs, uh, new to me as an audience member, ones that were not off of any of the uh-huh. records. Uh, and Yeah, I mean, we're, we routinely, like, put songs in the sets that haven't been released on records just because that's the, that's sort of the workshop form is, right. you, you know, you play them in front of an audience and that makes you take them seriously. And that's a, it's like the most efficient, like the, the best way to improve your perception of the song is to play it in front of people. So you have to do it right, you know, so you have to, so you have to make the most of it. And that's a, a been a habit of ours since we started. And, uh, at this stage we've got, you know, maybe a third of the set, something like that, is songs that we're that are active that we're actively working on writing and arranging rather than just, you know, old standards or whatever. Yeah, like it, I mean, playing the new song turns it from an academic construct into, you know, tactile muscle memory and having you know, understanding how it is beyond just Christ, how does this next part go? Like <laughs> Is there actually, is there an F sharp? I forget. Is there an F sharp? Like, and, and also like you learn things about the song by playing it on stage. Like there are parts that, that you think are engaging when you're just playing them in rehearsal because, you know, your mind wanders in rehearsal and you're thinking about all this different stuff. And then, so, you know, it's, you're, there are parts that, that can be, that can be satisfying to play while you're just sitting there or just standing around in, in rehearsal. But then when you play them as part of a set and you, you know, you've played 20 or 30 songs that, that are engaging all the way through and exciting and energetic. And then you get to this one song and the, and the energy level just drops. You realize, Oh yeah, no, that 
we just blew it right there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, it's a, you've created like a vacuum instead of uh, what you yeah. thought was an expansive space. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you guys. So, yeah. I, I, I very much like playing that. And also there are some songs that if your audience is familiar with them, like you get a kind of a canned response. As soon as people realize that you're playing a particular song, then there's this moment of recognition and people feel like, oh, yeah, I know that song, so I'm supposed to ho- holler about knowing that song, you know? And that that's a kind of a disingenuous response. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, you know, it's not that gratifying. You know, it, it's like telling a dog he's a good boy. Like, of course the dog is going to wag his tail, you know? <laughs> uh, so it's... And while we don't... While what we're doing on stage is, is primarily for us, you know, we, we want everybody involved in the show we want the whole show to be engaging for everybody right and when you feel like you're getting this sort of weird preordained response for, for certain things it makes you not want to do them you know so so it being that if there's if it's too comfortable or uh kind of feels too vegas stage showy necessarily that it, it just it doesn't yeah land right there's just a, yeah it's just a, there's a, a there's a thing like I like my favorite thing about music. My favorite thing about um, bands and music is being surprised. You know, it's having something happen that I didn't know was going to happen. And that forces me to pay attention, you know? And so I want to give other people credit for having the same sort of sensibility. uh, And I feel like if what you're doing on stage is just what they expect you to do, and, you know, they just, you know, it's a very low form of entertainment to 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 deliver on an expectation in my opinion you know so that would also include things that you know the different songs that you've played over the years there's the the look at me I'm a plane bit that's yeah. you know extended what I would imagine like relatively organically and then became a thing that oh they're doing the song that the, they're doing that plane song <laughs> yeah, nice enough though. That's that song in particular has room to uh for extemporaneous stuff and has room for yeah. uh you know to be sort of rebuilt from like the from the framework every night. And so that that song is really satisfying to play. Um there you know there are some songs that are kind of set pieces where every time you play them they're 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 fairly similar and those are the songs that tend to wear out their welcome, you know. But I mean, when you've got as as deep of a catalog and as many recordings as you have, and as many songs to choose from, you know, not that necessarily you're pulling a Fugazi every night necessarily. Right. You can, you can mix it that's up. That's what's. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying there's no place for a song that has a composition and that you can, you know, that where people can anticipate what's happening. I think that's, you know, that's fine. I'm just saying, if everything is like that, you, you know, you. I lose one of my principal joys in music is, is if I know what's going to happen before it happens every time something goes on stage. I mean, there are bands that I've never heard before where, like, three notes into the show, I know how the whole evening is going to play out. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and that, you know, that's, for me, that's like the least satisfying kind of experience. Even if it's something that is sort of aesthetically or whatever is to my tastes you know even yeah. if it's something that suits me stylistically or that where where the people doing it are people that i'm rooting for you know if there's no room for it to to surprise me then it it doesn't hold my interest that well you know well I, and 
I normally wouldn't use this time to pivot to something that's related to this show, but I kind of felt the same way about my old co-host, Brenna Betts, that she was one of the only people that I just genuinely didn't know what she was going to say a lot of the time. <laughs> and it made it for a great co-host because for, you know, for, for me, it's like having everything kind of like all planned out, like Borg-like tendrils everywhere. And then just to have this like wild card be in there, but always be additive to the show. That was uh that was, what are they say? A mitzvah, right? That, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, a, that was a wonderful thing. So, but back to shellac, a uh, good example, like one of my, you know, if I was to make a, a pantheon of like the shellac songs that I enjoy seeing you guys play the most, I always love seeing it when you guys pull out Billy, your player song, because I've seen so many derivations of it, uh-huh. which on, on the seven inches is very much like a, you know, a very, a very poignant breakdown, but I've seen you really extend that out. There's been like another sort mm-hmm. of like thing that's happened there, but I've seen, you know, untold variations and permutations of it. Uh, I mean, is that something that like, do you, is there talking about it in advance? Does this happen organically? Like what's, you don't, we have literally never discussed there's what you're talking about is there's a part in the song where the structure of the song sort of breaks down and there's this interlude and the interlude has some music and some talking. And sometimes it's mostly talking. Sometimes it's mostly music. Sometimes it's, you know, the, the drums are leading that section. Sometimes the voice vocals are sometimes the guitar is sometimes like on, on there are rare occasions when Bob decides to take the reins and you, you know, we're all subordinate to the bass in that bit, but, but it does happen. And again, it's very satisfying to play a song when you don't know how the song that you're playing is going to go. <laughs> you're you know? you're going to get as surprised as anybody else. <laughs> it's really engaging. And yeah, yeah, we've yeah. literally, we've literally never talked about that part of the song. How like, funny. In the 25 years we've been a band, we've just played that song. And when we get to that part, something happens and we never, literally never discuss it. So, I mean, it's gotta be just something where you're just, you know, you you have visual cues, of course, from the other, the other fellas, especially the way that you guys mm-hmm. set up, but uh, yes and no, but I mean, there's a, there's a kind of an, there's an end point to that improvisational section that's scripted. Yeah. Um, but the rest of it is all up in the air and, um, yeah, I, 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 we, it, it wasn't something we never aspired to be an improvising band or anything. <laughs> yeah. It, you didn't strike me as, it. it didn't strike me as shellac being a jam band as original conception it necessarily. Just, <laughs> there are some parts of some songs where we know that this part is going to be there, but we don't know what we're going to play until we get into it, right. you know? And for me, that's extremely invigorating, right? And I, I, I love getting to those parts of the song and justifying the, the effort there, you know? I have seen a lot of improvisational music, as you can imagine, living in Chicago. <laughs> and um, there are there are sort of cliches to the idiom, <clears throat> which I, I think are a real encumbrance to improvised music. Like there are things that people do in essentially every improvised show that I've seen that are interchangeable night by night, you know? And I think what the reason that, that I can be engaged by an improvisational moment rather than an improvisational hour is that 
um, it, it inverts that formula where you kind of know what's going on for most of the show, and then there's a part where you don't, as opposed to you in the improv world, you kind of don't know what's going to go on, and then this thing happens that you, is a very familiar thing, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's one of those kind of shows. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, and... and- well, it definitely, I know what you're talking about because it hits differently and it, it's not, it's, it's not and like also, I'm looking to, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that there's a, a thing about improvised music, qua improvised music, where the people involved kind of feel like they, they're, they need to exert themselves, you know, so there's this sort of a frantic quality to a lot of improvised music. And I feel like our improvised moments are often quite placid or they're often the they're often, you know, tenuous. And that's not a sensation that I get from a lot of improvised or free music, you know. I feel like you know, it's three guys all braying at me for attention. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be a that'd be an accurate summation and uh and band descriptor for uh some some acts yeah i, I think that's <laughs> that's not but it, it is something where yeah and i was just i think it hits differently right yeah and that that shows and i mean there are that's I, the billy your player song amongst the shellac pantheon is probably the, the most the, the most obvious example but there are other songs where there's it almost seems as if you're um, trying to throw off the expected. We're trying to we're trying to remain engaged, actively engaged with our own music, rather than having a library and just pulling books off the shelf. Right. We it's it's sort of like the, these are like each song is open to interpretation every time we play it. You know, and I'm we're we're by no means the most radical practitioners of that art but i feel like that's a, a way that a lot of a lot of my favorite musicians treat their own music they're not reverent toward their own music like you it, like if you go see will oldham for example um like he may play three or four songs from an extremely deep catalog that you're very familiar with and you won't realize that's the song he's playing until he's halfway through it you know <laughs> right yeah uh, Dylan is famous for that as well. Like he'll ha- change the ensemble up so much that you know there'll be this like rocking, raging version of a song that he originally did as a ballad, you know, yeah. as like a quiet acoustic ballad. <clears throat> or Willie Nelson's the same way. Like if you go see Will- Willie Nelson, like the structure and the text of the songs survives, but there'll be these long interludes where he just lets the band go and they're all fucking on they're all off on their own trip you know yeah yeah and it's it's just a very it's a generous way to treat the people that you're making your music with to like let it go however it's going to go and it's it's also it's a way of avoiding that sort of precious quality that sort of trapped in amber quality like you know, like you're seeing a revival show or, or you know, a cover band, you know? Yeah, you know, here's here's the, the third best 
bar band version of Aerosmith that's <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> the thing that's weird emotion. about it is there there are some bands who are good enough, whose like material is good enough that they can get away with just pumping it out, and it's great. Yeah. You know, like I've seen Cheap Trick probably a dozen times, and the renditions are probably not two percent different night by night, but the energy level of them doing it live and seeing it unfold in front of you and just the the exuberance of these people playing this music is that's the element that's added to it you know and it, it's incredible they they have an incredible catalog every song is a monster and every performance is flawless i've seen them a dozen yeah. times and every show has been amazing you know and you could also, if you just listen to the audio of any of those shows, they would probably all be very, very similar, one to the next. And then you compare that with a band like The X, who I have also <laughs> probably seen a couple dozen times. Yeah. And literally every time they go on stage, it's a whole new set. Like, they just don't have any reverence for uh, the concept of a catalog, you know? Every time they go to make a new record, they completely discard everything they've played in the previous 25 years and start from scratch. They'll even pick up new instruments like, well, I'm going to do this album on the baritone guitar. <laughs> right, know, like, right. Okay. <laughs> you know? they, they pull it off, too, as, as you're saying. Like they, it's amazing. I am amazed by that band. They are a wonder. That, you know, just year after year, they're completely rebuilding themselves from the ground up. Every time it's amazing. They have such an open, playful attitude toward their music, and they're, it's just such a joy to see that band in action. So, I mean, hearkening back to you know, what you're talking about, and, and I appreciate you giving the logic behind it, because it shouldn't be looked at like a conspiracy to stop people from singing along right. <laughs> to songs necessarily, right? I mean, I've said this before, and I don't know that people really grasp what I mean by it, but what we're doing on stage is for us. Like, the three of us in the band, we want to remain engaged with our own music. We want to, to feel like we're not just executing something. Like, we want, to, we want all of our music to mean something to us while we're doing it. And that means that, if, you know, over time, the way we play the songs is going to evolve because our relationship to that particular song is going to evolve, you know? I mean, there are some songs that, that we haven't played in forever, and, you know, if you if I revisit them and think about, do I ever want to play that song again? The honest answer is no, I don't ever want to play that song again. You know, and then there are some songs where we haven't played in forever. And, if you know, if it comes up at practice, like, hey, we should try to dust this one off and play it. And you listen to it and you're like, man, that would be a lot of work to re-inhabit that song. <laughs> Just because it's got, it has a bunch of little intricacies that, you know, took a lot of time to get together. And, you know, then if you, if you get into that and you start working on that and it doesn't feel like an academic exercise, like you're trying to recreate a Mesopotamian bread <laughs> recipe or something, you know, if it doesn't yeah. feel academic, then it can be equally as rewarding as writing a new song from scratch, you know? Well, so on that, and I remember a couple of the times that I've talked to you before, you've been good enough to kind of go through some of the songs and talk to me about, you know, the origination of them, like maybe the, the ideas behind them, uh, lyrical sure. conceits, things along those lines. Uh, does that ever change for you? Like as, as a song well, evolves? 
Yeah, like just recently, um, there's a song that we're playing now called Scrappers. That's It's unreleased, but it's a song that we've been sort of toying with for a couple of years. And the the original idea behind the song was there's a kid who uh, wants their dad to, to quit his job and buy a truck, and then they can be scrappers. And, and that, that would be like a, a way for this kid to engage with his dad. Oh, like right? scrap metal, uh, scrap metal. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. The guys that take it right around in these clabbered trucks in Chicago and collect things out of the alleys to sell as scrap metal or whatever. The colloquial name for them is scrappers in Chicago. I don't know what they, I don't know if they have another colloquial name where you're from, but I found out that in the UK they're called rag and bone men, which I think is oh, charming. Wow. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, and uh, for, for some reason, I got it in my head that this kid, at some point I got it in my head that the kid should be a little girl because like, there's, there are fewer ways that little girls and their dads can bond than there are little boys and their dads because yeah. there's all these like, you know, stereotypically male boyhood pastimes that the old man can participate in, like you know, like play cat, play catch, go fishing, yada yada. But and uh, and there's a there are, there's a kind of a reticence for for little girls to get involved in some of those activities. And so I've like, you know what, fuck it, we're going to make it a little girl. So the story is now about a little girl who wants her dad to uh, quit his job <laughs> and buy a truck and then they can be scrappers. Interesting. So did, it was it just kind of pondering the, the nature of, you know, it the story like, or the characters? That... I, I just wanted to, I just questioned my presumption about why it would be a little boy. Gotcha. And then I realized... Yeah, the, it, it's actually better if it's a little girl. So I made it into about a little girl. When you were on last time, I, I don't want to rehash it, but I, I really appreciated your take on people taking the nuanceless take of uh, prayer to God <laughs> and, and not seeing it as like, you know, the, the tradition of murder ballads and allegory. And, mm. you know, I, I have no interest in, in belaboring that. I feel like we've covered that adequately, but it, it is. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like, like I'm not uncomfortable talking about that sort of stuff. And uh, there are plenty of people who will do or say provocative things. And then when they're called on it, they seem baffled why someone has been provoked. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and I'm definitely not, I'm not a shrinking violet in that regard. Like if I, if I do or say something that has a, a vector that, it, that, you know, that sparks some kind of a, inquiry, I'm not going to duck that inquiry. I feel like that's your obligation. My obligation, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do things like that, the least I can do is be square with people about it. You know, like there are a lot of people who, who, there are a lot of artists who do provocative art or they use uh, characters who have abhorrent qualities in their art. And then when they're asked to to talk about it or justify it, they deflect and say, well, you know, that's, this is fiction. It's all fiction. You, you know, don't hold me accountable for that. And, and I, yes, of course it's fiction, but you invented that whole plot line. Like you came up with that. That's your story that you're telling us. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you weren't given a script by a director. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So I feel like I, like I have no qualms about talking about the 
any of those things. And in some cases, I discover that my thinking was flawed, mm-hmm. and I have something to apologize for, you know? I mean, that I've, I've been doing this a very long time, so there's been quite a number of those. Yeah, and, and I feel like, again, and, and times change and how people... How people pick up on things changes as well, and and I found that for whatever reason, the past couple of years there seems to be less of a appetite or interest for any kind of nuance, and there almost seems to be this return to like a childlike aspect of uh that the singer is singing about something that is them, that like there's mm-hmm. there there's no. This, this guileless, like, this is what I believe, and it's this. And right. that's surprising to me because as a thinking adult that understands allegory, it's not how I consume things. But also you can, you know, shout at clouds about it or you can deal with the, the world the way it is. Yeah. I mean, I saw I, the probably the most irritating deflection comes from stand-up comics. Yeah. Who are like, Oh, they're know, just jokes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, hey, why are you getting so bent out of shape? It's just comedy. Yeah, it's your comedy. You came up with this line of inquiry. You're the one that, that like, thrust it on us, and now you don't want to take responsibility for having done it. I mean, that's just, like, the most cowardly way to approach your art. I just, yeah, I have no patience for comics who complain that the audience is the reason that they're, you know, right. is the problem, or that the, you know, that you know, people are so sensitive now, you can't get away with anything. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can get away with a lot. There are certain things that you can't get away with, and maybe you should never have been able to get away with those things, you know? <laughs> well, it's, it's also like the idea that, you know, with a political candidate, that the voters can fail the candidate. No, it's not It's not the voters' fault. Yeah. It was your campaign. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think there are people that have taken culpability for that. You know, good examples like Pat Oswald. Uh, yeah. and, and there are people that have doubled down on dickery. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. Is if you look at right now, if you look at who are the best voices in comedy, like who are the people who are who make you laugh the hardest, who like it, whose ideas are the newest and the fresh and the most original. Those are all the people that are navigating that field flawlessly, yeah. right? You have a guy like uh, John Mulaney, whose comedy is has this sort of like um, aristocratic quality, where it's like you know he's he's acting sort of like Eisenhower, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually yeah uh, okay yeah. And then and then you have somebody like Anthony Jeselnik, whose comedy is every bit as raw and as like face-palming as all of the stuff that the the hacks and losers are complaining that they can't do anymore. But because he is more aware of his, the, his voice and he's aware of the, why the things that he's saying are tweaking people, it doesn't come off as awful. It comes off as amazing, right? right. And it, it's it infuriates me. Like I, I'm not particularly deep into comedy. My wife worked in comedy for years. Yeah, I was gonna say Heather is, but yeah. So I know a lot of <laughs> comics, and I'm I'm exposed to a lot of comedy. Right? I'm not super deep into it, but I I think it's incredibly insulting for a comic to say I am incapable of adapting to a changing society, 
And so I blame the changing society for my lack of success. Like, that's just an enormous cop-out. There's that, uh, there's a television show, I don't know if you're familiar or not, called Crashing. Yeah. And there was a episode that, that dealt with that, you know, basically with this idea of this uh, completely unevolved, you know, yeah. pur- purposefully Neanderthal <laughs> mindset comic that is like, oh, why, you know, why is everyone so uptight? Like lashing out against political correctness, you know. Right, right, right. Things along those lines. I, I thought it was it was very articulated and well done because that that does exist and and it is it's almost like Emperor's New Clothes. Like, oh, you weren't actually funny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that, what you what you thought what was treated as that's hilarious is really just like you're repeating a stereotype. It sounds like a joke, but it really it isn't even a joke. You're just being a dick. Exactly. Like the the thing. It's like I saw the. I saw one of the more, I don't know if it's the most recent, but I saw one of the more recent Dave Chappelle specials that was sort of a, a litmus test. Like a lot of people were saying, uh, oh, he, he can get away with this because he's that funny. And, you know, and yeah. I, what I heard was a bunch of hack material that would be absolutely welcome at the bar of a, like at a cop bar, you know? <laughs> Yeah, like, which which is not which is not a compliment. <laughs> exactly. I just heard I I just heard a bunch of hack stuff. Yeah. That that was unevolved and refusing to engage with on refusing to engage honestly with the topics. Like at one point he said, uh, "Yeah, what if I identify as Chinese?" You know, I mean, that's the kind of joke that your racist uncle would have made ten years ago, <laughs> right? And it, when it, he was first, when it, when it, it first <laughs> dawned on him that there was some this concept of you know fluid gender or transgenderism, like that. That's exactly the kind of idiot joke that you would have heard then, and he was making it last year. You know, which which is almost more insulting because that is someone that you know I feel like has had so many genuinely laugh out loud hilarious uh, things over the and years. He's clearly not a dummy. He's not right? stupid. Exactly. He's so that- <laughs> clearly not a dummy, and he's clearly willing to buck expectations. Right? He walked away from tens of millions of dollars right. when his show was enormously successful. He he has at certain points indicated that he could be one of these evolved comics he's just not he's he's making an active choice to be a cock yeah (sighs) on that and kind of tying it back to to the earlier point certain records they they're going to be discovered every year and they're going to be discovered by a new audience Uh, and you know maybe not even as records but as songs as as spotify who the hell knows right whatever but there's always going to be young men of a certain age that discover some You're of the talking about your slints and your Beach Boys pet sounds and your, you know, sure, your evergreen records, your evergreen Big all- Brother left you as record collection. This is now your favorite record kind of records, right? And, and all that stuff is going to be uh, treated as if it was new, as if it was happening right then. And the uh, because that's what culture has now become with music is that with everything available, you can have the experience of listening to something for the first time you know, that's going to be different than what it was when I came out, but it's with a modern context. And that's a larger conversation as well. But some of the big black stuff definitely came from, from a perspective that was, was of its time. Some of the material, 
obviously it's you know, it's allegorical. There's uh, thing, uh songs like Jordan Minnesota. Yeah. You know, where it's Well, Jordan Minnesota is like that if I have like if I have one capital regret in my tenure as a musician, it's that song. That's like the single biggest regret I could possibly have. We were I was completely hoodwinked by like um, a totally false narrative that was perpetuated by a fucking cop. Like, how could I have not been suspicious of that? You know, right? And it was almost like the <laughs> the low grade QAnon of its time, <laughs> like <laughs> fake news, right? Yeah, but I, yeah, I I I wish that there was some way I could atone for having been part of that cultural moment, and I I'm and I'm ashamed of it. You know. And then you also have songs what you like Seth, right? Right. That people are going to come at that with a, with a modern context, and they aren't necessarily going to... They don't have a treatise to go with it, to contextualize sure. it. Yeah, and the, the perspective on that one, I have no qualms defending. It was, it was a sort of a... Uh, the inspiration for that song was a, there was a, a landlord of mine who had a dog that was seemed like a normal, he seemed like a normal landlord, seemed like a normal guy. And his dog seemed like a normal dog until he explained that his dog hated black people. His dog hated black people. That's what, that's the way he put it. <laughs> right. Just the dog. I'm fine. The, yeah. the, the dog's a, the dog's a real jerk. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that seemed, at, you know, instantly that seemed like a deflection. Oh, Really? Your dog hates black people. <laughs> yeah. Any idea why? Yeah. Why would that? Why would that be? Yeah, how any, would the dog any get idea that? Why your dog hates black people? You know. Yeah. And, how, how has uh, your dog been radicalized? What What books has the dog been reading? Exactly. <laughs> and at the same time, like that song starts with this telephone. There was a telephone hotline in Chicago. Uh, this white power the sort of uh, white nationalist organization called the America First Committee, which had I actually found out had fairly deep historical roots. I didn't know about this at the time, but it, it was actually like, um, you know, a remnant of the resi- civil rights movement resistance, you know, like the, the right-wing reaction to the civil rights movement, the same, for the same reason that we have, like, say, Liberty University and things like that. Yeah, it's something that's held true to, unfortunately, to modern times. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's uh, I didn't know about its historical thing. I just I just found this telephone hotline, um, and I would call it every now and again and just be agog at what this dude was saying. And so we we used a recording of that as the intro to the song. And I mean, I I feel less dumb extrapolating on it now because it's. I don't feel like I'm explaining it to its native audience. I feel like I'm just talking about a historical thing. Right. But um, the the point of that whole song is that things that that in a lot of you know I had I had been quite comfortable thinking that we had solved racism that you know that racism was not a <laughs> a thing. It was not like the all-encompassing, all-pervasive problem yeah. that it actually is, yeah. Now, my wife, to her credit, uh, you know, she was one of the people that, that would argue adamantly that race was like the number one issue in America. And it took me a long time 
to agree with that perspective and but i i do now you know um like i wouldn't have agreed with that perspective um uh for you know when i was a young man because i, I thought well academically we've kind of solved racism like you know uh, it it just doesn't happen that much well, and then you were also coming out from a position of some... privilege even if you didn't realize it at the time right exactly I mean... <laughs> exactly i never experienced racism yeah, oh, no. how could there yeah, be it racism? Couldn't, couldn't possibly exist i haven't seen it myself yeah exactly so uh, so that song the point of that song was basically to expose that this like i mean it, it seems stupid when i say it now but it was basically saying, yeah, this is actually around us everywhere. This is actually going on, like your landlord is a, you know. <laughs> exactly. And this and this telephone hotline that is in Chicago, right? Like in the city of Chicago. Right. Like that's, that was the point of that song, was that it was, it was highlighting the existence of this racism as a fundamental part of where we are and and what's going on. There's also a bit about relativity there, um, but you know the chorus of it is all special relativity. Yeah, and you know it, it's something that, and again coming from the time period that the album art almost was as, as important as the music because you saw the album art usually before you <laughs> ever heard the music. Okay. I always appreciated that there was this almost like a cartoon presentation, right? It was it was like the bright right. colors and it was really yeah, and that was all practical. That was just like it's way less expensive to do graphic art than it than it was to do color halftones, you know. And it was way less expensive to use process colors than it was to have custom PMS colors. So that's why the album artwork was so graphic. I could do the negatives at work, and and it wouldn't cost anything. It wasn't just an aesthetic; it developed into an aesthetic. But, um, like, if we if we wanted to have photographs, we'd have to pay for halftones. And if we, <laughs> right, it's cheaper. <laughs> yeah, but if I just wanted like an illustration and some block text, well, hell, I can do that at work. You know, and well, a lot for a unique aesthetic. But for me, uh, you know, coming at that as a younger man, it also allowed me to like, you know, if I hear a song like Bad Penny, I heard it, I'd be like, oh, well. Clearly, this is like you know a cartoon caricature of of, of mm-hmm. this person. Like this, this is not meant to be taken as like this is what these. This isn't the mentors or sure. <laughs> something along those lines. Which also trash music. I got I got to say, right. I mean, the mentors were if there was a if there's a cultural parallel to a band like the Mentors, for example, or you know, Drunks with Guns or one of those things. It's, it's probably something like pro wrestling, right? Yeah, yeah. Where you have these. Uh, clearly fake personas with a clearly fake narrative that is, you know, the execution is the art, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the, and the idea that the conceit of knowing all that, you just put it aside and enjoy it as, as it is for the, for the thing that it is much like I assume people enjoy wrestling. Uh, I mean, the, yeah, I, I can only assume that people enjoy wrestling. They they watch it for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, as as two dudes I, I that do not, not care for it, we probably shouldn't opine too much about it. But yeah, it's not for I'm, me. I'm not uh, I'm not intimate with the mentors. Like I don't know a lot about the mentors. I'm not that familiar with the music. The one thing that I know about the mentors that makes me fond of them 
is there was a record review section in an old Slash magazine where they had where El Duce reviewed a bunch of his peers' punk records from L.A. And at one point, he's uh, he's talking about how awful the X album is, and he there's a picture of him in his hood eating chorizo and eggs off of the X album. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's that that actually makes me like him a lot more now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, specifically, and the reason why I bring up Bad Penny is that again, from, from my personal narrative, like it was very clear to me. Okay, this is this is allegory. This is this is a you know a narrative tool. This is not meant to be taken, you know, as like this. This is life goals. Like again, people. You know, yeah, did, no, did, it was actually it was actually a character study, a character story about a guy that I actually knew who actually behaved like that and was actually a jerk and then just never disappeared. You know, but that you know that's a that's neither here nor there. It was actually about a guy, but uh, that but there are people like that. That's the point. Yeah, and 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 the reason why I'm kind of harping on this ancient stuff is that it's been covered before but between like songs like that and your, your band with ray and david william sims just the, mm-hmm. the controversial band name there's there's things that people have seized upon that really have not necessarily any any desire for explanation but want mm-hmm. to extrapolate their own conclusion based upon yeah i well factors. being frank i don't think i've been held to account honestly for being in a band called rape man i mean that's unconscionable i i it I, I feel like I've gotten a pass kind of uh, on that, and I shouldn't. I feel like I should have to answer for that. And I have on occasion, but not nearly to the extent that I think is warranted. Like, it was a it was a flippant choice that we made at the time. And, you know, it, it, it's un, unconscionable. I, 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 it's indefensible. <laughs> wow. And I, I don't think it's... I don't think it's out of bounds for somebody to call me on it. I feel like I feel like that's a perfectly reasonable thing to call somebody on. So how do you I mean, I guess you did just reconcile. <laughs> I was just say but how do you reconcile the fact that you, know, you can't change that? You can't like make a like amends for right. it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I at the time I was somewhat deaf to feminism and I was somewhat deaf to those to the arguments of vulnerable people. Because, again, because of my privilege, I didn't feel vulnerable myself, and so I was, I was fairly deaf to it. And, I, and that's a failing on my part. That's, my, that's on me. And I, I made a fundamental error when we were – during that era, I equated leftist crit- critique that may have been slightly ignorant – but was legitimate, I equated that critique with a kind of right-wing, puritanical critique um, because they, they, seemed, they both seemed ignorant of, of our intent. And so I, I equated them, I erroneously equated them without, reali- mm-hmm. without acknowledging that the progressive critique of a, of naming your band Rape Man is an order of magnitude more legitimate than a puritanical critique of just not liking to see the word rape. And I, yeah. my fundamental mistake was conflating those two. So I, and that's why that's how I 
maintained uh, an indifference to the criticism. Yeah, well, that's 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 an excellent explanation. I think it's you know it's, it's a shame because the obviously the music holds up and is it is great. Yeah, but. I'm very I'm very <laughs> fond of the I'm very proud of the music that we made. I'm fond of that experience of being in that band. Ray and David are amazing musicians. I'm gratified I got to be in a band with them. You know, naming the band is probably the single, but also the defining regret of that whole episode. When I had. Uh, Ray Washam on the show what seems like a thousand years ago I believe he he, uh, he mentioned one of the other names was uh, the florists I think if I remember right um, yeah we had a we toyed around with quite a few different names yeah but I mean I guess there's there's not much there's not much to be said for what you can do for the legacy of that huh well I mean it's, yeah it's like getting a it's like getting a really awful tattoo <laughs> I did that. Right. You, know? it's, it's, you, it's there. you can tell I did that because you can see it. It's right there on my forehead. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you remember. There was a um, <laughs> there was a uh, a terrible British hardcore band uh, called Blitz in the uh, mid '80s. I don't know if you remember that band. I do not. But they 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 went through a midstream evolution into a kind of a high octave arty uh sort of new romantic y style band. Mm. And you know, couldn't have couldn't have made a bigger stylistic change, right, from being this sort of an yeah. uh, hardcore oi type band to being this sort of a fay um you know fake ultravox or whatever. Um and I remember reading in a fanzine some kid right after they had put out a record with their new direction, some kid wrote into this fanzine, I can't I just heard the new Blitz record. I can't believe I have them tattooed on my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that that's that one sentence speaks volumes about multiple things and I and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, think about this. Band chose to name themselves Blitz. Right? right. Yeah. Think about think An about English the connotations of that term. Yeah. <laughs> chose to name themselves Blitz. <laughs> then a guy thought, "Yeah, I'm going to get the word Blitz tattooed on my face oh, because man. it's this awesome band." Right. <laughs> and then the band goes not awesome in a big way, and you have Blitz tattooed on your face. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I. I I think it's completely fair game to make me answer for being in a band called Rape Man. I think that's completely fair game, and I'm, you know, like I said, it's an indefensible name, and uh, so I'm, I, I don't mind being put on the spot because I, I'm not going to defend that choice. I feel like it was, a, it was capricious and it was insensitive and ignorant. I, I think it's refreshing when people take complete accountability in that way and i think that i think that a natural human reaction is to try to deflect or minimize mm. and i mean at the time i would have like i said i would have completed conflated all the criticisms of the band name into a single kind of ignorance and I, that would have been enough for me at the time and i don't I, and clearly that's not enough clearly that's incorrect so right <laughs> With what I'm the, saying is that 25 year old me shit the bed on that <laughs> subject, and right, yeah. I'm not ashamed to admit it. 
you know, I feel like it's, I feel like it's more healthy to, to be willing to take responsibility for having done something awful than to try to pretend that it wasn't awful, you know? Uh, well, and that, that's, that still happens. You know, there's, sure. uh, there's, there's bands that name themselves something audacious and then realize, hey, maybe that was not a wonderful idea. And yeah. <laughs> there are recent examples of that even. Yeah. It is, it is fascinating to me, though, that, well, I mean, and just with band names alone... I mean, Christ! It's it's like there's there's a this the having a unique band name of any kind is is, is almost a uh, yeah. Know. I don't know. None of the good ones are taken. <laughs> uh, the total pivot, but I meant to bring it up earlier. Uh, something that's changed since we talked last on the show is uh, the passing of Mr. Dave Riley, and I yeah. I, w- I wondered if you might speak to that. Well, I mean, I wasn't super close to Dave the last few years of his life. Like we were, you know, we spent a lot of time together when you're in a band, when, when we were in the band together and when you're, and he was my roommate for a period. And like when you are spend a lot of time in close quarters with people, you know them intimately well. And if you, you know, years can pass and then you cross paths with them again and you sort of reanimate that relationship instantly and it's effortless, you know? And, I felt that way whenever I would cross paths with Santiago, for example, who's the other guitar player in Big Black. Um, Dave Riley was was our second bass player, and uh, he was with the band for all of our significant touring and all, you know the last you know all, the the bulk of our creative experience was with Dave, and he he added a lot to the band, and he was easily the best musician in the group, and his personal life was just fraught with thing after thing after thing where he just had, he just kept taking it on the chin, you know, like when he was a teenager, he was in this terrible car accident and his whole face had to be reconstructed from constituent parts. And, um, you know, he was in, he was recuperating in the hospital for a long period of time. And then, you know, he had, really gnarly scars and he re- rehabilitated himself and he became a fixture in the, the punk scene in Chicago. He, he worked in recording studios and stuff in Detroit. Um, but then when he moved to Chicago, he became a fixture in the punk scene and he, he played in a band called Savage Beliefs who are a really stylish sort of surf punk kind of band. I mean, that, that doesn't give them enough credit when I say surf punk, but, but, um, uh, Santiago and I both really liked his playing in that band and Santiago approached him about joining Big Black when Jeff Pizzotti had to leave. And he he added immensely to the band. He was a fantastic musician. He had a real fluid sense of melody and his the way he attacked the bass was more like a guitar player, like playing you know, some chordal parts but a lot of like really definitive rhythmic parts. Um and he would you, it was really great being in the band with him because over time, like you'd start with a basic framework of a piece of music, and then every time you'd run through it, he would be building and shaping the whole song just by changing the arrangement on the bass part. You know, just by the way the songs eventually would come to live and die would be based on the interplay between the bass and the guitar. And he was, you know, instrumental in the success of any of the music that we made with him in the band, you know? Um, and then after the band broke up, 
uh, he, he started he started drinking a lot more and he became kind of unreliable and uh, it, he had a lot of personal problems, which I wasn't privy to except after the fact. And then the precipitating incident of his, the rest of his life was he, he sort of drank himself unconscious and while he was unconscious, he had a stroke and then he was in a coma for several months after that. And coming out of the coma, he had motor disability and his speech was impaired and all that sort of stuff. And he spent the rest of his life contending with that set of circumstances on top of all the bullshit that he had to suffer when he was a teenager, you know? So I admire his resilience and the way that he was able to maintain his perspective and his personality through all of that. Um, a significant part of it um, could have been dodged one way or another. And everybody that knew him, you know, tried to be an ally, tried to help, but he was an extremely headstrong person. Like he'd gotten over his previous, all of his previous obstacles by forging his own way, by like trusting his own instincts. And so he was extremely headstrong and it made it very difficult to engage with him in a way that you, where you felt like you could have any influence on him, you know? Um, and he died when he died. He, what one thing that kind of bothered me, um, he died fairly quickly after he was diagnosed with, uh, throat cancer. And I know that um, he was able to spend the last period of his life with a, a, a partner who cared for him a great deal and in a setting where he was at peace. And that gives me some, yeah, that nice. gives me some, uh, I don't know, I guess relief about the way it all transpired was that toward the end of his life, he did find a place and a, a person that he could trust and, and be comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a sad story. I know for for a while, some years back, he was doing a blog. Yeah. That, uh, if I remember correctly, the the title was "Worthless Fucking Cripple." <laughs> yeah, it was about that. Was primarily about his experiences in um, the the um, assisted living system. Yeah for, you know, the sort of public assisted living system for disabled people. And his cynicism was as evident as his, you know, his self-worth and his critical sensibilities. Yeah, it was, it was a, <laughs> entertaining is definitely the wrong word, but it was, it was yeah, a, <laughs> it, it was engaging it was, it was and brutal. It was, <laughs> it was brutal. Yeah. But it was a hundred percent Dave. Like if you yeah. knew Dave, that's exactly what you would expect him to have written about those circumstances and those people in that situation. You know, a hundred percent. Like that's that's what you would have predicted, and it, you know, it was completely genuine. None of it was for effect, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, 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 totally. And that's uh, you know, that that kind of stark honesty is. It's not necessarily in short supply, but to have it be so 
like stunningly viciously evocative is a uh, is, yeah. is is rare well thank thank you for speaking to that uh that's you know obviously that's a heavy topic yeah, i mean i admired dave i we weren't we weren't super close for the last few years of his life um we would interact with any any stuff having to do with the band you know catalog or whatever um and uh, you know but that was about the extent of our interactions really complete and total pivot uh you, you mentioned earlier and i actually had a note to ask you about this because i just recently talked to tim also mm-hmm. uh the horror movie soundtrack yeah this is a this is a recent development i i never expected to see anything you're involved with uh in, in the same line as cm punk <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I was uh, I was approached by the director. The film is called Girl on the Third Floor. And I was approached by the director, a guy named Travis Stevens, who said they'd been listening to uh, music that I'd done, and they wanted to talk to me about doing the soundtrack, doing the score, and other aspects of the soundtrack for this film. And I was like, you know, I've never done anything like this before. I have literally no idea how to do it. But if you're okay with that, I'll give it a shot. And so we got started on the process, and it was an enormous learning experience for me. And it was a chance for me to make music with Tim and Allison. Tim Midget and Allison Chesley were the other two people on the Helen Money, for those not familiar. Helen Money, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was all in all, it was a very rewarding experience. It was a lot of work. Um, In the end, we ended up, like, in total, we recorded a couple of hours worth of music. Um, because the first the first part of the exercise was uh, we composed and recorded music and sent it to him, sent it to the Travis, the director, and he picked out bits that he wanted to use from the pieces that we'd composed. And then he said, all right, well, I need a few more things. I need something with this kind of tone. I need something with this kind of tone. I need something, you know, with this kind of, you know, it's going to go along with this sort of action without having seen the film yet we got yeah. another round of instructions and we right. and we did another set of compositions uh and all of that stuff totaled about an hour's worth of music and then uh and then after he'd gotten all of that he sent us a video cut of the film with a spreadsheet um that showed the parts of the film that still needed to be covered for music cues and um so then we got to work covering those and the bulk of that we did actually performing to the film like we were we were actually watching playback while we were playing mm. for the bulk of that stuff. okay so you had a, you had actual visual cues to work off of yeah okay and so there's a, a lot more tight synchronization with the action um with those scenes and I'm, uh, um, and then, and that ended up being about another hour's worth of music. <laughs> so, and then, f- what we did for the for the album, you know, because when you're working on a whole bunch of stuff, there's just by the luck of the draw, some of it's going to be pretty good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one, one can hope, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, just rolling the dice, like every now and again, you'll hit a seven, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, so, it's like the sync up. It's like, oh, that worked nicely. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, what we did was we, we took the pieces that we liked the best from all the composed pieces and the pieces that we liked the best from the sort of incidental or, or action sequences 
and try and assembled it into an album. And I'm very pleased with the way the album came out. Um, the artwork for the record, the front cover is a, a, a rendition, uh, just a rendering of the, the house that was the setting for the film. It's a haunted house story. And the, so the house is an illustration done by Jay Ryan, who's done a lot of Chicago band posters and gig flyers and stuff. Fantastic he's musician in, in his own right, yeah. Fantastic musician, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's in Whelms, he was in Dianoga. He's just an amazing dude and an incredible artist, and I'm very fond of Jay. So it was great that he was willing to get involved. And then the interior artwork are um, illustrations that were done by uh, a young woman named Ivy Jane Lewis, who at the time was four years old. And she had had a terrifying nightmare. And the nightmare, the title of the nightmare was Gabriella took my ticket Mm. and her folks, her parents, uh, Bobby and Holly Lewis, who are in a a really charming band, sort of old timey music band called Bobby Holly and the Rick and the, yeah, Bobby Holly and the Ricketts. Um, they, uh, they suggested that she do some drawings of this, related to this nightmare to sort of process the experience and so that it wouldn't bother her because she had a, had trouble getting to sleep for a few nights afterward. And so she did these illustrations of what came out to be extremely scary ghosts um, that were, that was her rendition of this nightmare that she'd had. And uh, when I saw those drawings, I asked if we could use them in the artwork for the, for the album because the the film is about the way the ghosts in this house kind of intervene in real life and this was literally ghosts intervening in her life and her drawing pictures of these ghosts so um so that's where the the artwork for the interior of the record came from and then the these ghosts that she drew ended up becoming sort of characters, like they're they're hidden in various places in the artwork of the record. There are little little tiny um, cameos of oh, these cool. ghosts also appear. Like there's one on the spine, and there's you know the the coloring in the sky of the illustration on the front cover is taken from the coloring of the ghosts, that sort of thing. And uh, unfortunately, I've neither seen the album art in person nor have I seen the movie and I will say I'm at least consistent in this show that I almost never see the movie or documentary before I have the person on. Uh, sure, sure. So there's something to be said for consistency, but my, inter- uh, the movie is on Netflix and apparently like I didn't, I didn't know. I don't know what the market for independent horror films is. Right. I knew that it, you know, it played at various festivals. I saw a screening of it at the Chicago international film festival and there, you know, there are specialty film festivals for things like this, apparently. But um, it was on Netflix, and apparently it was in the top ten of Netflix oh, really? for a bit when it was released, which kind of surprised me, just because I don't, I didn't, I would, you know, there's a lot of movies out there, and if you just had to pick ten of them, I'd be surprised if you'd get any any one particular movie. You know? Well, and I, I, my understanding of it is there's a really good use of, uh, you know, what's commonly known as practical special effects meaning yeah from the tom savini school of uh yeah we i mean when i was a kid i was really into things like uh 
uh, Fangoria and mm-hmm. same, yeah. You know, the sort of splatter film culture was kind of. I was charmed and, and engaged by that stuff as a younger person, and um, I was very pleased when I found out that Fangoria magazine has recently been revived. There's oh, like no a kidding. print edition of Fangoria that's recently been revived, and that this film that I worked on was one of the first films to be reviewed in the newly revived Fangoria. Oh, how cool. I did not I did not know that. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, had you... Obviously, composing for this is far different than being in a band, but, you know, working yeah. with uh, Tim, we have a long relationship with as, yeah. a, as a friend and familiar with each other's music. Uh, and, of course, you've recorded uh, Allison with Hell and Money yeah. stuff before, but... but that's a different type of instrument than than you have in your standard typical rock band. Like, was it? Yeah, you... Allison's an amazing musician. I, yeah. I really love her music, and I love her approach to her music as well. She's got, she's you know classically trained because that's how you learn to play cello. And but um, I love the way that she approaches the cello as as an instrument that has a full spectrum. Like she's as willing to be like harsh and aggressive with her cello as she is to be lyrical and beautiful, you know, and yeah. it's just a very wide ranging instrument. And she's, I, I really love her approach to it. Was it a challenge at all to kind of fit in what you're doing with, you know, the cello, which operates a, a different tonal space than like, you know, the typical rock and roll bass or <laughs> guitar. Well, I mean, the, the way the ensemble is put together, it was the, there are three sort of, main character voices um which are meant to represent uh aspects of the film so like for example there's a there's a protagonist voice and that's one instrument and then there's a the the sound of the house which is a the ensemble sound and then there's you know the the sort of spectral sound for when there's a ghost involved and so that was the sort of the basic makeup of what was going on with the ensemble is that Tim was playing baritone guitar, Allison was playing acoustic or electric cello, and I was playing electric guitar or this, I have this 16-string drone electric guitar that was used for a lot of the soundtrack material. Wild, okay. So uh, I was either playing the drone guitar or conventional electric guitar, and the midge was either playing bass guitar or baritone guitar, and Allison was either playing acoustic cello or electric cello. And then there were like a few random things, like we needed piano in one spot. Tim played that. I think we needed percussion in one spot. I played the percussion. Like little bits and pieces here and there. But the that was the basic ensemble was those three instruments. And and to be clear, that's not. I mean, this isn't something you do on the reg. Like this is. <laughs> oh no, no, I've never done it before. Something kind of I don't new expect, and different. Yeah, never done it before. I don't expect to ever do it again. But I mean, I'm open to doing it again. But I'd be very surprised if anybody called me out of the blue and said, Hey, would you like to do the soundtrack to our film? Yeah. Well, I'll... I think I, I think I would be able to do it a little more efficiently the next time, you know, just cause I, now I have a little bit better of an idea of procedurally how to go about making music to suit a movie. But at the time I was completely green and I didn't honestly didn't know what, what to expect. So I'm thrilled that I was able to pull it off, you know, yeah, that, it, that it ended up being satisfactory. Just that by itself is kind of enough for me. It's got to be kind of interesting, you know, that you've been doing this for a bit. So to have something, this kind of be like a brand new experience like that must be kind of, must be a little interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, 
working when you're working and recording occasionally you're asked to do things that you're are outside of your ex- window of experience just like i'm sure i have recorded things that have ended up on soundtracks you know mm-hmm. but this was the first time that i recorded where everything i recorded i was expecting to be part of a movie if it was used at all but then also thoroughly expecting a large portion of it to not be used for anything you know yeah. because that's sort of the 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 brief when you're working on a soundtrack stuff is you you're recording a, a ton of music and ultimately a lot of the movie doesn't isn't going to have music in it you know right. so a lot of what you're doing is literally wasting your effort <laughs> and you and you have to be willing to waste a lot of your effort in order for the bits that are of use to end up being valid to end up being worthwhile so it's not that much different from being in a band then huh <laughs> 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 sorry had to <laughs> yeah no worries so what, what would you say like what's the if you, there was a, like a takeaway lesson learned from that experience what was the thing that kind of stuck out to you the most um well it's weird like i i didn't have any expectation because i never i never done it before didn't know it was supposed to happen um what pleased me the most about it was being able to work with Tim and Allison for an extended stretch. And, you know, I just, I, I enjoy their company. They're very generous, gracious musicians, really smart, very creative. I just, you know, all of those aspects of it were absolutely top tier, you know, like among the best experiences I've had in the studio. And then, uh, it was, it was just, very rewarding to be asked to do something that I had no idea how to do and then be able to navigate it in that way. That was just all of those things made the experience really great. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Uh, so real quick, we're we're going to start wrapping up here, but I I want to talk about, I had forgotten that last year, uh, you released those peel sessions from shellac. Yeah. Uh, as uh, entitled The End of Radio, which also happens to be yep. the, the end theme of the song and has been for the last untold decades mm-hmm. that it's, I've been doing this. Uh, that is something where, you know, some of these have been sort of floating around for a while mm-hmm. in, in other formats. Um, yep. what, what prompted that release? How did, it, how did it come to pass? Well, um, we when we did the original sessions, we sort of... We inquired and sort of negotiated with the BBC, like, are we going to be able to use these recordings if we want to? And they said, yeah, there's a process you can go through where you you can get the rights to use the recordings. I mean, all of us had, we're music fans, and so there are, you know, in our collections, we have other bands' peel session recordings. Birthday party, fall, like, I mean, there's a long history. Yeah, Yeah, like the, the, the Cure... Uh, peel sessions and the fall peel sessions are as good or better than the proper records by those bands, you know? And, and you know, so it's just, it, it was sort of, we had always intended to do something with those recordings. We were happy with the way they came out. So, uh, you know, we just got started on putting it together and it took a few years to put it together, like in terms of, you know, clearing it with the BBC, like when you're dealing with a, a public, with a, a governmental or quasi-governmental body like the BBC, there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through. Like we had to get, they had different versions of the BBC logo. Mm-hmm. 
we were not allowed <laughs> we were not allowed to use certain ones of wow. them for some reason okay so you know like we had a lot of discretion with the music like we could do basically whatever we wanted with the music and the recordings but the the packaging they were really really concerned about you know what was going to be on the packaging how the bbc logo was going to appear what the credit exact credit lines were going to be and it that that was strange and alien for us but dealing with it, dealing with somebody that cared that much about something like that yeah that know? sort of bureaucratic thing where like that's the thing you're obsessing yeah. on huh okay yeah but um you know after jumping through those hoops and all that was also a learning experience. Like now, if it ever came up again, I'd know how to do it better, you know? Well, and it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say like in the end, they were very cooperative because like, I think it, it's good for them as well for the BBC sessions to be seen as artistically valid and not just like programming, you know, like I think they're gratified that other people want to listen to their recordings as music rather than just, you know, they filled that time slot on that day kind of thing. Well, and it, it's interesting too that, uh, I mean, yeah. And talking to the BBC as, as the BBC, right. But John Peel kind of had a, I don't know, humanizing <laughs> element to like this, yeah. this vast <laughs> monolithic enterprise that wouldn't necessarily be something that you'd be like, Oh, this is a killer gang of four session. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, it's, well, John Peel was in a kind of an incredible was well he was an incredible dude on all levels just the you know the I'm a I'm a big fan of the BBC I think the BBC is an amazing institution and you know it's undervalued even by the people who value it the most I think um I think it's an incredible institution and it's an you know it's a model public agency and I I really I think I think the world of the BBC and uh John Peel was a unique person in music in that he was extremely generous to the people who were making the music. And, and by that, I mean, he would, he, he wasn't critical of music that didn't appeal to him. He saw that as an opportunity for him to grow as a listener and learn to like something, you know? And that is a very generous perspective <clears throat> and one that I'm not capable of. <laughs> I was going to say not a very common one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to think I'm better about it now than maybe I used to be, but yeah, certainly. Yeah. I know that I'm not better about it now. <laughs> I consider it an absolutely heroic effort on John Peel's part that he listened to all of this music, right. much of it clearly terrible, right? <laughs> And tried to find the value in all of it, you know? Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I understand. And I think it's awesome that it's called End of Radio because I know that that song is at least partially, um, you know, inspired by by the influence of that and that mindset as well as, yeah. you know, the sort of, the idea of like the, the sort of post-apocalyptic scenario and, uh, you know, the idea that like radio itself, yeah, there's, there's a, a terminus point where they're just, you know, if you're on an alien planet somewhere and you receive these radio waves, human culture ends at a certain point because <laughs> transmissions yeah. have actually stopped. And I, I, I've I mean, always—that's not a new idea. I'm sure that that appears in 
my brother was a big science fiction fan in the 70s and he read a lot of uh science fiction stuff about alien contact and a lot of the alien contact was kind of triggered by you know they you know they would show up and their only mode of communication with humans was like quoting uh Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz you know <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing yeah i think i read something where it's like they all the aliens picked up on all the uh the mafia movies like the, the godfather and things yeah. like that and they all dressed up like gangsters because they thought that was the pinnacle yeah. of human culture <clears throat> but yeah i mean like i said it's not a you know it's not an original idea so no but it, it is something that uh the, the way that that song's wrapped together you know for me that was that was inspiring because when i thought about what this show is uh-huh. which often frankly feels like you know messages in a bottle thrown out into sure. the ocean uh by nature of the past be, being a passive medium uh, you know, I thought it was it was a very interesting hook to hang the hat on. You know, the the whole like, can you really call it broadcasting if there's nobody listening? You know, that 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 right. mindset. And you know, certainly I'm not alone in that aspect. But yeah, you know, I've been doing this for half a decade now, and it's mm-hmm. it's something I hear literally every time I do an episode is the recorded version of that. Like, <laughs> I, and I I try hit the, hit the post for certain things. Between the recorded parts of what you're saying in the beginning, which changes live and and has derivations like anything else. Uh, I, I, so I guess the question there would be, did you ever think about when you recorded that there would be somebody hitting the post on that song that like includes hitting the post? <laughs> uh <laughs> No, that, that, honestly, that would never have occurred to us. But the um, I, I think all of us. Like all of us have, I mean, our lives have been enriched by the kind of underground and independent radio that, you know, that's sort of, sort of how, like how I first learned about punk was by, you know, the sort of Sami's dot, like um, hand to hand, somebody turned me onto the Ramones and then he had a cassette with some other records on it. And then, you know, I read about something in a magazine and I mail ordered a compilation album and, you know, you'd go to the record store and the one weirdo at the record store would take you under his wing and like, you know, turn you onto the, his three or four favorite records. And, and then when I moved to Chicago was, there was this radio show, the Sunday morning nightmare, which was all punk music. And I felt like a kid in the candy store, you know, when I found that radio show and that, you know, I'm sure we were all thinking, you know, and there were similar radio programs in Boston that Bob heard and was in, was involved in. Even when he was in college, he was a, a college radio guy. Um, and so we all have an affection for radio as a medium. Like we all, we're all of our lives were informed by radio, you know. But what's, you know, this is kind of an interesting cultural period where like everyone knows what radio is. But there is a generation coming that will have never listened to the radio. Right. And where radio will be as absurd as vaudeville is to us, you know? Yeah, some anachronistic thing that happened long ago that people exactly. refer to. Like if you like somebody of my generation, I've never seen a newsreel, right? <laughs> sure, for my yeah, parents yeah. for my parents, they saw newsreels every week. Like if they would go to the movies on a date or whatever, there would be a newsreel every week. So it's that quick that shit happens that just disappears from culture. And radio is going to disappear. Radio is going to be one of those things. 
yeah, it's crazy to think about. And it's, it's, it's interesting that for a medium that has largely gone unmourned, maybe (laughs) that, uh, there is a bit of a, you know, if not elegy, maybe a eulogy within that song that, uh, you know, kind of honors (laughs) some of the, some of the ideas that come with it. And I, I appreciate like the ballroom blitz talk up that, that comes in on, on the live version. Like, you know, that's great. Like when I first heard that I was, I like lost my shit. I thought that was awesome. Um, so yeah, I guess what, guess what I'm saying is, uh, I, I appreciate you guys writing that song and I, I appreciate you letting me use it <laughs> as, as you would anybody. <laughs> yeah. I also appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. You're always so very giving of your time and, uh, it's always appreciated. You know, as it turns out, my schedule is open today. <laughs> yeah, man, it's a it's a crazy time to be alive. Yeah, uh, I'm very deadly curious about what you know. Like right now, because everybody is people aren't interacting with each other in person. They're all the sort of secondary modes of communication are sort of um, they're all growing in significance. Like so, like I'm I'm on several group text threads that are very important to my day, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and there's, you know, there are these whole, like these Slack channels and zoom groups or whatever that are, each one of them is kind of insular. Each one of them is kind of a little scene and they're all going to be developing their own secret language, <laughs> their own inside humor and yeah. their own like idiom. Right. And there are going to be a, a thousand new three letter, abbreviations that only nine people are going to understand, but for them, it's going to be fucking hilarious. You know, <laughs> it's going to be like the tower of Babel for uh, insular memes. Yeah. And, uh, I'm really, commentary. really curious how that's going to, how that's going to develop. Like I'm, I'm, I'm deadly curious how that's going to be like, what exactly the effect of that is going to be, um, on the sort of popular or, or sort of the sort of general culture. Like how much of that, like now everybody knows what LOL means. But there was a very there was a period where only like the deepest internet nerds would know what you meant if you said LOL, you know. And now, you know, the the concept of an emoji is baked into almost every computerized thing, right? It's pretty. It's pretty. But there was again, there was a period where the the term emoji would have been met with a blank stare by everybody except the most extremely online people, right? So I'm really curious how this era of isolation is going to affect language and culture um, by virtue of the fact that so many people are going to be so deep into uh, their own channels of communication, which are going to be just by default hidden from most of the world you know yeah just in the uh, a back and forth between having uh potential guests on for this show i made a typo and then i just instinctively typed jfc yeah uh to which the other person said does that stand for jesus fucking christ i'm like yes <laughs> yes it does <laughs> yeah. and i didn't realize that that was like oh of course that's an insular thing like that's not something that not everyone's necessarily gonna know uh and and that kind of I've been thinking about I that mean, as well. I mean, it's 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 interesting to see how that's going to develop and what that means. Yeah, I I mean, it's I feel like it's just going to it it absolutely must accelerate during this era when everyone is 
communicating almost exclusively impersonally, you know? So I'm deadly curious what comes out of it in that regard. Well, it's going to be interesting to see like what what gets added to the dictionary. You know, they always, there's always those things that they, they, they <laughs> yeah. announce every year that they're allow, allowing this slang term word, yeah. Yeah, to be like, well, what's it going to be this time? Yeah, who knows? Well, there's there's some places like in France, for example, there is a, an official French French language body. There's an organization that that you know that will deign something as officially French or not. You know? <laughs> do, do they have a do they have a stamp? <laughs> they stamp it afterwards. Yeah, and it's certified kind of French because, like, there are some some parts of French culture that are obliged to use this official French language, right? So for years they couldn't use the term computer or PC. They had to use uh, like a like a digital recording computer or a digital audio workstation. They wouldn't call it uh, a DAW or a workstation or a computer. It would be a recorder. Audio numérique, or no, ordinateur audio numérique. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty bizarre, and that that's yeah, I think that's going to be that's a small scale version of what we're going to see writ large. I think. When, yeah, uh, I'm deadly curious how this happens. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be cool. Wouldn't get any other side of it. Uh, speaking of on the other side of it, Steve, it's been great talking to you. It's always great talking to you. Thanks so much, man. Well, thank you for having me. You've lightened the burden of another day in isolation. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that, likewise. And uh, thank you for doing what you do. And uh, I'll I'll give you the full report when I when I watch the movie on the, uh, on the okay. Soundtrack. All right. <laughs> Take care. See you. Bye. There he goes, Mr. Steve Albini. Love that dude. Good times, man. Radio One, play the drum.
All right, so that was Billiard Player Song by Shellac. And before that was Wingwalker, also by Shellac, off of Seven Inches. And before both of those, we had a little number called Spoke by Shellac. That's off of the End of Radio, the album The End of Radio. <laughs> That's uh, off of the Peel Sessions. You can find that uh, normally where you find your musics. Man, I can't Spotify, all that good stuff. We talked about that for a bit. Yes, we did. Can you hear me now? It's good stuff. Recommend it. I still need to pick up a physical copy of that. Just like I need to see that movie. Uh, movie. You can get that on Netflix. Soundtracks. Tim Midget. Steve Albini. Allison Chesley. Girl on the Third Floor. CM Punk's in it. Yeah, that's weird, right? Strange times. Cool. Well, you've been listening to Bertonic Reversal. The 150th episode. Wow. <laughs> Half a decade plus. The show usually airs Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain, 5 p.m. Pacific. RadioNope.com. Mr. and Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. RadioNeutron.com for the archives. Anyone within the sound of my voice. There's a Patreon. Patreon.com. Protonic reversal. Dollar a month. You see the shows in advance. 50,000 watts of power. Feel free to leave a review. In all the various places that people do reviews, it's always appreciated. It helps people discover the show. Not compulsory. This microphone turns sound into electricity. Steve Albini's pretty easy to find, so you can find him if you want to. Electrical Audio.com. Out on Route 128. There's another 150. You got my radio on. Stay safe.
to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day,
Hello, Electrical. Hey, Steve. Tis he to whom you speak. <laughs>